Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Oh, hello. Welcome to Wednesday Waypoints, where Waypoint staff and friends take a break to nerd out and deep dive on the culture, art, and entertainment that's been inspiring us lately. Or, at the very least, inspiring something. Uh, gathered around the table this Wednesday, we've got Patrick Klepek. Hello, hello, hello. Austin Walker. I'm feeling inspired. <laughs> By who? And Natalie Watson. I, too, am inspired. I need to leave room for us to have a good, like, two-minute hate on something really shitty. That's the thing, like... Okay, you know, I'm ready what to if, hate on something. What? David Plotz. David Plotz. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> what was yours, Natalie? Wide two. Is it Kylie Jenner? One is Kylie Jenner <laughs> for not fucking ever eating cereal with milk until her 21st year of this earth. I don't know how you get there. Like, I don't know how you're not just over a friend's house. Well, I guess super rich. Yeah, but right. I don't know. I had some you rich friends. Sleepovers and like, and they had milk and cereal at their. No, but I mean the other way, where it's like, maybe the rich friend is always having the sleepover. I think she going. always had. She probably hosted right. most of the time. There's lots of food stuff that I didn't eat when I was a kid until I was over at someone else's house, and I didn't want to be rude. And yeah. I was like, yeah, I guess I'll eat whatever this bullshit is. <laughs> but that was never cereal with milk. Yeah. See, I chose. I I don't like milk in. Cereal. I'm not like a big milk person to begin with. Like I like milk's milk good for your a, bones. No, it's an ingredient in all sorts of things. I don't. I don't particularly like milk on its own. But like I have milk in all sorts sure. of different things that I that I eat. But milk by itself just doesn't do a whole lot for me. So the milk and cereal thing never uh, quite clicked. So I just ate that cereal out of that goddamn box like an animal. Wow. So uh, you and Kylie. No, but I tried it. I chose. I, I I decided it was not for me. It is I not that I had the revelation at twenty one. Mm, <laughs> this thing. So when Kylie does it, it's bad. Patrick, adorable quirk. Exactly. I, ch- I chose. I don't want the milk. I'm not. This Natalie, is not a revolution to me. I am choosing to not have the milk. <laughs> the other thing I hate is the PlayStation Classic. Oh yeah. Just make I'm those upset. games backwards compatible, right? Yeah, it's it's the the simplest thing. Like the thing with the the NES Classic and the SNES Classic was like, okay, the I don't know, it, it's kind of the same thing. But when it first came out, I was like more excited because I was were. like, ooh. Yeah. See, when Nintendo does it, <laughs> adorable. <laughs> Sony, evil cash grab. I'm, well, I'm, yeah, I'm trying to figure out what do people have? What's the problem they have with? The, I mean, I'm not going to buy any of these things. But like, what's I already the pre-ordered with- it. Yo, you- is this is this a two minute hate on yourself? Then is this a self loathing thing? 
Well, I, I mean, there's I always got an it as a gift that. for someone else. Yeah. Okay. This is, are they your roommate? Is this where you buy a gift for someone else, but you're buying it for yourself? I bought it for my boyfriend, so it's so yes. Yeah. Oh, so yes. <laughs> so you're sitting here on this podcast saying this is bullshit, <laughs> but you're conveniently buying it in a way that you can use it. But I am being transparent. If uh-huh. you were really look, if you were really going to walk the walk, you would be on eBay finding a launch backwards compatible PS3 yeah. right now. This that's very the, moment. That's that true. I've show. honestly been thinking about getting a PS3. Okay, well, I you know what? I've got one because I'm like, there's still a lot of good <laughs> stuff there. I haven't. It's hooked up. I haven't turned it on in months. I just months? really don't want a PS now. I want a PS3. You I don't want to actually play games. Yeah, I don't want to PS now. <sighs> oh, anyway. My brain is okay. very mixed up in my head right now. Those are all of my thoughts. That's a morning. lot of things to hate on this podcast about things that inspire us. Okay. I guess hate is a Look, sort Wednesday of inspiration. Look, work in progress. Yeah. We're, we're figuring it out. Just like us. Here's what I love. We had one chance to do this show for the first time, and this is how we kicked it off. Cereal. I'm so sorry. No, I'm happy. Okay. Uh, fuck David Plotz. Mm-hmm. That's all. Who's Don't. that? Oh, my God. Uh, don't. We can't. We can't. Okay. Well, speaking of that, though, like, I... I know it's been a week, and maybe this isn't the best thing to transition into, but I need to talk to you guys about fascist propaganda. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) All right, David Plotz. What is it? What is the fascist propaganda of of choice today? So I went to – I I was at the MFA in Boston. They've got this exhibit, The Art of Influence, which is Mm. a collection of – uh, postcards, propaganda postcards from like World War One and World War Two eras, and it's kind of a, just an interesting artifact in that like, oh yeah, the postal service was in some ways fulfilling the same purpose of like social media today, right? It's like you'd send people little postcards uh, for propagandistic purposes, also just to, as a way of saying hi, like hey, look at this cool fascist po- like <laughs> this this cool like uh, you know pocket sized fascist poster I found. I think you guys cool. really like it. Sick. And you'd send that. Yeah. So they got the collection of uh, of all this stuff. And it's really interesting because there's really, like, distinctive patterns and tropes between the different belligerents. Like, it is really striking how bad the German propaganda is. Like, almost universally. When you say um, bad here, do you mean in quality? <laughs> yeah. Okay. It's like... Like, look, mo- like 95% of the stuff there is bad, like morally, politically speaking. <laughs> oh, yeah, like, it's yeah. like, yeah, yeah, yeah. it's, it's, it's mostly bad shit. But like the German stuff is just awful. Like I sent you guys an example of, um, like a World War One era German, uh, like propaganda, like campaign. This was like a recurring motif in World War One where they're showing like, British caricatures with big mouths. Guys just like... I'm very curious about big mouth. 1916. (laughs) And the joke is, they're like, ah, here's 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 the British 300 millimeter mortar. Ha ha, it's a guy with a big mouth. Because the joke is... That the Germans have Wait. real 210 millimeter artillery, and the British don't. All they got is some big, big mouths. mouths. Some big mouths. And there's like a dozen of these things. Like that was such a fucking knee slapper that like got the Kaiser. <laughs> it's so bad. But I mean, like that reflects so much of the ideologies going into World War One, right? Which is 
<clears throat> a bunch of imperial powers looking to flex their muscles and like determine who is the leading power in Europe because of technological advancement. And like, I guess they didn't invest in propaganda and humor, but they did invest in big guns. Yeah, it's. But if you look at what the other belligerents are doing, like the Russian and the Russian stuff tends to be really sentimental. Mm. Uh, the the Russian stuff is all very defending the homestead in some ways. Like like I, I don't know. I didn't take too many photos of it because it wasn't as like it was it wasn't as striking because it was it was it was mostly kind of unobjectionable in a lot of ways. Lots of pictures of you know soldiers departing for the front. Um, you know, farms, you know, somewhere, you know, somewhere on the uh, Eurasian plain, but like it, they are doing different things. The British are right. doing different things, but the Germans have this, the other thing they've got, the other motif they return to a lot is a weird fixation on Britain as an island. Hmm. Like it's amazing the degree to which German propaganda is just like a record of their psychological frustrations <laughs> at not England, being able to like, cross the channel. A tiny island nation beset by constant rain. Note the umbrellas. Like, <laughs> and then like this man holding an umbrella, gripping his ass, like barely making it through the water. It's very strange. The Oh, the English disease is the name of that piece. Right. <clears throat> well, like I, I guess it, part of that speaks to something larger that I think maybe we don't often think about is I think when you say the word propaganda, what we think of is like a handful of images. It is like Nazi, racist, racist Nazi yeah. propaganda. It is Rosie the Riveter. Yeah. Uh, it is like Uncle Sam saying, saying, you know, I need you. Mm-hmm. Um, it is uh, keep uh, stay keep calm and carry on, mm-hmm. which was not actually deployed in the way that I right. think we historically. It was have. found in a basement after the war, right? Yeah, it was, like, it was like conceptualized, but not ever actually used, and then just became yeah. Popular or, if because- it, or, or if it was used, it was not used en masse. It was not like right. everywhere in England during the war. Unlike now, where it is everywhere on, on people's phone cases. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, <clears throat> but when we think about propaganda, like propaganda can be those different things. It can be a postcard of the beautiful Russian steppe because what's trying to be produced is a certain sentimentality of of motherland, of, mm-hmm. of home, of, of oh, this is the place that, that unites us or whatever. Or it could be... This is uh, what we're fighting for. Right. Or it could be a, a, a racist diss that like dehumanizes the targets of action that in your in your you know I don't even say rational mind but but uh, targets of dehumanization who on another day you may in fact wish to defend it helps reproduce them as something less than human so that the acts taken against them uh, are easier to overlook or even root for and, and aid along uh, or you could make fun of the fact that England is an island and it's rainy <laughs> better bring an umbrella yuck 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 <laughs> what was yeah. fascinating to me though Rob was the the Italian stuff that you also singled out. Yeah, that was the stuff that really jumped out at me because it is by it is far and away the most like aesthetically accomplished stuff in that exhibit. Mm. Uh, and that's not actually a huge surprise. Like if you look at the like the origins of Italian fascism, totally te- like bound up within movements in Italy's artistic community. Right, like Italian fascism is intertwined in a way that like. A lot of political movements of that era were not with sort of the um, political and artistic ferment uh, of the moment. And that goes back to World War I. Uh, Italy, Italy's slide into fascism really begins during World War I. If anyone's curious, like there's this excellent book called The White War 
which is about Italy's campaign in the Alps against the uh, Austro-Hungarian Empire. But one of the things, one of the central tenets of this book is like, Italy goes into that war as a young country and kind of a fractious one, but like a pretty normal one still. It's it, it's recognizably like a, a liberal democracy in a lot of ways. And over the course of that war, they basically like start plunging into fascism, and they right. never quite escape. And all their a lot of their art is tied up in that. And that combines with uh, the futurist movement, where, right. which Italian artists were really leaders of. And that is immediately appropriated by the fascists and not even, not even just appropriated, like to yeah. a degree, they're also fostering it. They're encouraging yeah. it. And so in the, in the interwar years in the thirties, Italian fascist propaganda, at least a lot of it is really aesthetically like captivating. Like they're mm. making like striking futurist images. Uh, I hesitate to say like, this is cool shit, but like, <laughs> Some of the stuff, like 1931, there's no there, there's no war being fought yet. I don't think they've I don't think they've even invaded uh, Ethiopia by then. But um, they're celebrating their air force. But the posters for it are all of these like um, you know polygonal uh, studies and like the idea of aircraft. It looks like the sort of thing that you'd see at a World's Fair poster, mm. and it's all really impressive and striking and that's italy like when things are going well the really funny thing is the stuff from the late war that motif dies out and it's hilarious like the italian propaganda once they start losing all that coolness all that like look at you know look to the skies for the you know the the powerful air force we strike at our enemies from above all that goes out the window because they're getting the shit bombed out of them like daily (laughs) Right. And they're being invaded. Right. And suddenly the propaganda shifts. And I think I, I sent you guys a, a picture of um, like this caricature of Roosevelt and Churchill. Mm. Um, also looking weirdly kind of cool, like badass, like ghost gangsters. This is like hovering. a Frank Miller comic cover or something like I think yeah, I've like, seen this Sin City. Some sort of old history. What, uh, yeah. <laughs> is one of them brandishing a semi-automatic pistol? Both of them are. They both just have pistols in their hands. And they, and they it clearly have both been fired. There's smoke emanating from, like, the end of the gun. Like, some yeah. shit has gone down, and they came out all right. Yeah, and, like, it's this, like, bombed-out Italian city and, like, tons of dead civilians in the streets. And yeah. that, that, was their, that was their propaganda move. It was this, you know, really... The cost of modern war is inhumane. It's terrible that anyone would do this. Who would? Who would? Da- who would dare? Right. Right. Well, again, I think that that there's two things there that I, that I think are worth digging into. Um, one is the ways in which aesthetics can both help shape a politics and also how aesthetics are shaped by politics and how the second they needed to ditch the futurism and the and, and you know move into this kind of like more traditional caricature they could but the other thing is is there's this you said like oh it looks cool and part of the reason why it looks cool is we've seen it used and the descendants of this the, of the Italian futurists um, used constantly to create cool looking things right like yeah. Art Deco as a movement exactly. uh, is grown out of uh, the futurist movement in part at least um, but also like the thing that you said of of like oh yeah the fascists uh, you know used futurism but actually the Italian futurists. 
loved fascism. Like they were um, not just on board with it, not just like, oh, yeah, we're along for the ride. But like it was aligned with their philosophical ends of industrializing the country. Um, and that's partly why they didn't really love a lot of the rest of fascist art in a weird way, right? Like the, the, the Nazi art is not at all like futurism. In fact, when I look at futurism, not just me, when, like, when you look at futurism, it looks like the sorts of art that Hitler would say was degenerate art because it was not purely representational. It was not um, about showing like the, the strength of the state or the strength of mankind in clean, simple ways. Mm-hmm. And yet – Fascism, as always, will arbitrarily find an excuse. Well, I was just going to say, like, yeah, so you look at the Italians, what they're doing with, like, this cool futurist art. I sent everyone a picture of some pre-war Nazi propaganda. Right. And what are they doing at this time? It's a cartoon where Ghost Frederick the Great, (laughs) Bismarck, and Adolf Hitler are, like, huddling up. And, like, they're about to do the whole, like, break thing. Uh, that's that's their that's their propaganda message, and it's again like just terrible trash. Right. But it is striking the degree to which, like you're right, Austin, the tradition that the Nazi propaganda is operating in is very much this like hearkening back to classic themes. Uh, it's all very little re- literal representation, uh, very little little left to the imagination. And yeah. the, the futurists were always like this, right? Um, uh, Filippo Marinetti, uh, who is like one of the key Italian futurists, um, explicitly like was not just a backer of the Italian war in Ethiopia, but like like wrote about how it was in line with the the Italian futurist aesthetic like movement. Like he said, "War is beautiful." Uh, War is beautiful because thanks to its gas masks, its terrifying megaphones, its flamethrowers and light tanks, it establishes man's dominion over the subjugated machine. War is beautiful because it inaugurates the dreamed of metalization of the human body. War is beautiful because it enriches a flowering meadow with the fiery orchids of machine guns. And this goes on and on and on. Um, And it's just like – these are people who have given themselves over to the idea of industrialization um, and have found a sort of like – I think maybe this is why it's a fascist movement is at its heart is still this nationalism but also this idea of man's power, of mm. humankind, of man – not humankind, please <laughs> – of man over nature and over – even over the machines that they are using to expand their empires. And even to replace. Right. Like that, that nature – to become non-existent, right? Exactly. Like it is not. It is not. It is not like control of that nature. It is not like bioengineering. It is like <laughs> a a, a, it down. a metal planet. Yeah, exactly. A metal um, planet. We're gonna get to metal in a little bit. Mandy's later. We're gonna yes. talk about metal later. I have thoughts. Um, but I guess, Rob, my question for you is like. And also, these are postcards you got that people sent around, which is such a mundane little thing. Yeah, and that's the weird thing. It's hard to imagine. Like, I really do wonder how prevalent these things were as, like, this is a collection that's obviously collected in part because they're like, it's a historical curiosity. It's drawn from a much larger collection of postcards from the 20, from the 1800s and 1900s. Uh, but I really do wonder to what degree were people really like out like shopping like you're you're standing at the counter like buying a candy bar and you look over and you see like oh hey cool like bismarck and frederick the great are bros with hitler <laughs> yeah man hans will get a kick out of that <laughs> send that over yeah uh I, I really do i really do wonder about that but i think one of the things that um 
I think was really striking to me is just the degree to which when everything was going well, fascist art is like explicitly instrumentalized on behalf of power. Even if the, even if power and violence isn't explicit in these themes, like the capacity for it it is always there. Like fascist art is kind of marveling at the idea of capacity for power and violence. Um, and it's really like kind of excited, gleeful at the thought of what you could, who you could turn it against. Right. This is this is partly like why the fixation on England is interesting. England is an island. It's the one country that Germany can't easily bully. You can't right. just walk over there and kick the shit out of them because there's <laughs> the English Channel, and that really clearly got under uh, the German skin. And that's why you see a lot of like. Um, celebratory postcards in World War II about like, ha, they'll never expect our Luftwaffe, um, which didn't work out. Got but him. it was striking <laughs> to me the degree to which like these themes repeat through history. Like when that power, when the fascist power is being broken or turned against them, suddenly they're all about empathy. Suddenly they are victims and humanity comes rushing to the forefront because they can no longer appeal to like, you know, <laughs> to, to just raw power. Right. And they begin making a case for uh, moral restraint. Is the modern like fascist postcard alt right meme pages on Facebook? I mean, or is it is it like Fox News to right, a certain right. degree? Right, like Fox News, especially in you know in the Obama era, it was reactionary. In the Trump era, it is you know by and large state run propaganda. When you yeah, have, yeah, you know. Folks like Sean Hannity, you know, referred to as a shadow chief of staff talking with the president every night, you know, a president with, you know, fascist tendencies or at least fascist curious. Um, uh, it's I mean, Fox News seems like the closest equivalent we have to sort of like a modern propaganda machine that I wonder how that cycle works or Rob, how you look at that, how Fox News operates and how that cycle could play out depending on where that presidency goes. But I think like Fox News is a very traditional top down propaganda outfit. In a lot of ways, like Hannity is not quite as all encompassing as like a Yosef Goebbels, but like it's a it's it's a figure like that. They they sort of parallel each other a little bit. I think the meme pages thing, I think the postcard and meme pages uh, comparison is maybe just a little more apt, because if you think about, like, again, the idea of how these things are shared, it's meant to be sort of the self-reinforcing phenomenon of like <laughs> funny. And in the case of, like, a lot of alt-right propaganda, a lot of it is meant to be these small messages that carry a lot of meaning and context. They're, like, they're densely packed with a lot of, like, self-referential material. And part of the appeal, I think, is you already kind of get it. You're kind of bought in. So somebody... You know, I don't know. Somebody sees sends you a picture of like Pepe laughing at a crying Hillary or something, and like that is a message. That's something that, like is going it means to get shared around to someone, but it means right. something to the people who get it. They understand immediately the messaging. The other person is like, "What is this shitty frog?" Yeah, in this and it relies on paint image. the grassroots passing it around amongst themselves. It's right. like endlessly self pollinating. Well, and there's also like a deferred meaning to some degree, right? Like in that like. You, they could never explain the joke to you because the joke is fuck Hillary, yeah. fuck snowflakes, etc. Like it doesn't actually have a punchline outside of its like emo- outside of who the target is and who it would upset. 
if they did understand, right? Like it right. isn't like there's it's not a political cartoon in the sense that like oh Pepe is the oil industry, yeah, right, or, or in explaining the the image falls apart because yes. in, yes. in, in, in yes. its commu- what it's trying to communicate is an emotional gut reaction based on like a long history of inferences and like things you picked up as opposed to yeah like you're saying which having, does the thing having a message. Which does the thing that fascism does, which is it creates – and like you can look at – for me, this is like the way Umberto Eco just, just describes fascism in, in Ur-Fascism or the way some of the Frankfurt School people do, which is that it creates a sort of like it, – it devastates the individual. It completely destroys the individual and, and instead creates a sort of monolithic national identity that the person takes as their individual identity. And like, aha, this is us. We are the ones who laugh at Pepe. Um, we are the ones who, who like all go to the same – like alt-right meme page and yeah. that creates the identity. Um, though I think Patrick also is getting to something really important with the Fox News thing, which is there is something distinct between like mid-century World War II era and even post-World War II era propaganda going into Vietnam. Um, or, or, or I think maybe that is where the switch happens or, or the, one of the pivots happens, which is propaganda stops just being state-run um, and often becomes corporatized, often becomes individualized. Um, you know, it is it is in advertisements. It is in uh, it becomes a lot more nebulous because it's about the production of what it means to be an American. But but that as often happens through U.S. Army commercials as it does Gatorade ads. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Um, and it's just like it becomes this thing that's like it, it's not let's go to war. It's hey, this is fine. Everything is fine. Don't go on strike. Uh, yeah. Don't march in the streets. Don't ask us what's up with the weird – with why your soda tastes different now. <laughs> um, don't worry about the fact that we move the factories um, and don't worry about the fact that we're using slave labor overseas and that we don't really even know that for sure. But it probably is happening. Yeah. And just like stay calm. But we're an American company. Right. And to be an American consumer is to consume American products. That's right. So – Pick this is trust. one of the central tenets of uh, Jacques Ellul's propaganda, which he's making the argument. He begins it as a study of like classic, like top-down propaganda uh, efforts, but he points out that like, oh yeah, free Western societies, particularly the U.S., are like among the most relentlessly propagandized right. uh, in history. But it's all done on behalf of companies and advertising. Like he's like advertising's first purpose is to assure people that everything in the social order is fine, and selling you is actually the second. Like <laughs> right. the second order uh, of priority. Well, but, it's like um, the, the flip of like the alt right memes and Fox News is actually not that everything's fine, but is a per, like perpetual state of victimhood that mm-hmm. you were under assault, despite the fact that you know, in, in many ways, conservatives hold like all sorts of levels of power. <laughs> exactly. There's like, always a Churchill and Roosevelt floating over your <laughs> shitty city. <laughs> It might be Hillary. It might be, but yep. Uh Right, but even 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 now, with like Democrats hold like so you know so very little actual like actionable power to change the lives of people from the Supreme Court to the presidency on down, and yet all the propaganda on the right is on stoking perpetual victimhood that they're coming for your X Y. And Z, but also the, that they're weak. You're that you're stronger than them because right. it's, almost, the, it's almost like the you're, right, the you're enduring. The right. all right and, memes are like the more like aggressors, right? It's about like like propping up like Donald Trump is like an aggressor, like it's punching back. And Fox News right. is about like, well, we're weak. We're actually like we have no power. Like you, you actually everything is coming for you. Like you are a weak person. And like the alt right stuff is like more along, and like along the lines of of uh, like the weird strength aggression. Um, uh, at least yeah, but the there's still news. like the feel when no girlfriend. 
I don't know. There's like all there that. Like, or, you know, Gamergate, right? Like, I mean, Gamergate yeah, was a, a exactly. huge, huge propagandist, or you know, uh, movement in which it was built on the mm-hmm. idea of victimhood that folks like all the people in this call were coming for your video games. And we did, and there's and no we more are. Video Hell games. yeah! The only and one left is the PS1. PlayStation Classic <laughs> canceled. <laughs> Uh, Alright, last thing I'm going to say about this Cancelled Last thing I'm going to say about this In all the art I saw It was still, like Ben Garrison still couldn't have gotten a job Illustrating these fucking postcards (laughs) Alright So I think talking about, like, violence Though, and power And victimhood uh, Mm -hmm. Natalie is, I understand it You've been engaging with art that is maybe Less explicit in its in its meanings uh in its in its intent uh but really like from what i've seen because i'm also watching for the first time uh intensely concerned with violence and its targets and who holds power absolutely um i'm watching twin peaks y'all for the first time ever my first actually i saw i i was gonna say it was my first david lynch thing but i did watch Mulholland Drive in a senior high school uh, critical theory class. Wild. In which I fell asleep. So I don't really remember what went down in that movie. I remember it was mad weird. A lot of people saw that movie that don't remember what went down in that movie. So (laughs) Yeah, staying awake is not necessarily a part of understanding. Yeah, I kind of got that gist. Uh, So yeah, I'm watching Twin Peaks for the first time. um, And that show i have so many questions wait can we can we we, we, the way you were explaining i'm curious um you were explaining when you watched that you know how how much do you understand like did you know about twin peaks going into it other than it's david lynch it's weird like because for i think folks like for like me when i watched it before twin peaks the return which i didn't Mm -hmm. get, get around to i had so much cultural osmosis about the memification of twin peaks and it's both in terms of what people have done with that series and then also it's how it's impacted culture in ways like obvious and not so obvious and because how much of that you were aware of before like like i knew who the log lady was which like made like characters like that like far less like fun to discover and so i'm curious what your yeah what your history with it uh was going into it like none like zero history so good that's so much better okay yeah i know nothing I I truly don't know anything. The only thing I knew was like the music, okay. like some of the like the first. Well, because yeah. okay, so my boyfriend is like a huge David Lynch fan, and he often will. He has like a Twin Peaks playlist that he like likes to play during the day. <laughs> oh my <laughs> god, that would drive me fucking insane. But I, but it's funny because that music is like <laughs> exactly. It's like, it's like mad romantic yeah, to me. Yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> Just that making music. your coffee. Boom, boom. <laughs> yeah, let's do it. Let's live that life. That that music is like now. Well, not because of my boyfriend, but like maybe it is a little bit because of him. But it like has like a very romantic like feeling, or I have like a very romantic feeling associated with it. So when I hear it in the show, like my I always like feel this sort of like there's like a sentimentality being like brought forward for me, or there's some sort of like. Anyway, I think it's the most artistic soap opera I've ever watched. Um, Natalie has left the microphone. 
Oh. Just to plug in my computer, sorry, because okay. um, it's about to die. Um, I will. I am on episode five of uh, the first season right now. I've been like kind of uh, binging it and trying to watch as much as I can, mostly because I want the answers. Yep. Um, uh-huh. <laughs> Keep watching. <laughs> but uh, it's funny because it's not like a, it's not like a thing where I'm like getting distracted by the questions, mm. which I think is something that is can be a problem with sort of the more open-ended like ooh what's happening here? Like yeah. Westworld for me. I watched a couple episodes and I couldn't, there were so many, I had so many questions and there were so many like holes left that I, it was just kind of distracting for me. And I just wanted, I wanted to know that world, um, without having to like guess at it. Like I just wanted like the, the right. world to be presented to me. in a puzzle for, box. Exactly. But with, um, what's interesting about, uh, the way that Twin Peaks is presented is that it is a very... When I say so, like it has a soap opera structure, like very much in in terms of like the the plot line, like that's a yeah. plot line you could find in soap opera, and because of that, like even if I'm anticipating the wrong thing, even if I'm anticipating the wrong answers, the <laughs> what? Huh? That was, my computer started making noise as I was looking at it. Are you thinking Lynch about interview. the oh, swing oh, dance? Was no, that like the swing not what dance? That was. That was just an oh, okay. Oh. <laughs> I want to see him laugh and not answer it. Yeah. That's what it was. That is literally what I was looking at. Um, but because I'm anticipating, and even if those anticipations are wrong, at least like I don't. There's nothing like nagging at. I mean, there is a lot nagging. I was going to say there must be. I mean, by episode five, you're starting to get into some real questions. some of the surrealism. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, I love that shit. I'm only that, up to episode two, and right now it's still very traditional. Ever? So, Rob, you've not seen this show either. No, I was inspired. Like what? I was like, oh, Natalie's going to bring it up, and uh, you know what? Now Me, is the time. Rob, Rob want to start a. Twin Peaks rewatch podcast. <laughs> we, but it would have to be like it would have to do something that Isle Thumbs didn't already cover. Yeah, that, was, that would be okay. the issue for me. Yeah, but like, I def- we can it can be recurring at like Waypoint. Yeah, you get to uh, a good Twin Peaks episode. We can talk about it whenever you want. Okay, cool. but, give me any excuse. Because right now, though, for me, it's still very much, and this is striking to me: the degree to which so many shows are completely straight faced adaptations of this to a degree. Like Twin mm-hmm. Peaks is. I'm not sure I can think of many shows like it before Twin Peaks exists, where it's the murder in a small town, an entire, like, it's not a case of the week. The entire TV show yes. is structured around what, yeah. like, one crime, and it's, like, rippling effects through this community and what led to it. And it's it's a show that is, like, interrogating the inner workings and connections of a community. And I'm thinking, mm-hmm. like, now that that genre is very popular, like, but it's all very straight-faced as well. Like, Broadchurch is a great example. But Broadchurch isn't trying to be surreal, right? Broadchurch is just murder in a small town, let's ferret out every mystery. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Twin Peaks is interesting because, like, I feel like, and I'm not sure where this is going, but already in the early episodes, uh, the Dale Cooper character... Mm-hmm. He's like a brilliant detective, but it's also clear he's somebody who's like obsessed with the idea that there are connections between things. That oh, yeah. Like there's larger context and meaning to everything. It's not just that somebody sent you 
to a decent hotel they knew about. It's that they picked out the best hotel for you. And that makes it special. Yeah. Uh, everything is like, there's a, it's a throwaway gag, but I don't think it's a joke. Early on where he's like, he's got his little dictaphone and he's like, who killed JFK? <laughs> and but that's who he is like yeah. everything is like he is he is that guy as as normal as he seems he doesn't seem that normal he's always the guy with the red twine like evidence collages on, on the wall whether they're there or not yeah but in a way that is very much like it's less like cause and effect and more like the workings of the universe if mm. that makes sense like there he has like because there he has a deep um, sort of spirituality to um, the way that he approaches these connections. Like they're not just um, cause and effect. They they have like like you're saying like deeper context. Like they're more spread out, um, and and thus like deeper associations, um, which are unraveled throughout at least the first five episodes that I've been it'll, watching. It'll keep on going. Yeah, so I think that uh, Agent Cooper is someone really fascinating for me. And I think my favorite character right now is Lucy. Um, Every time Lucy's, like, there, it makes me... She just... She's always kind of connected with it. She's, like, very necessary, Mm -hmm. and she, like, operates in the uh, space of, like, the police the sheriff and all of them in a way that is like taken seriously. Like she is, I don't know. I don't know how to, or to, it's hard because I'm so you're in it. I'm in it, but I also like, there's just so much. I, there's also like a lot I could talk about now, but I don't want to spoil for Rob. Sure. The, I Uh, I don't say, I would no, say, no, I don't no, want to spoil it. No, yeah, you should go in. (laughs) No, 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 no. Completely. The less you know, the better. Cause that is such a, uh-huh. I knew I knew way too much going into watching right, well, the show like, that it just y- took away from so much of it. You, Patrick, like me, probably came in with the cultural knowledge of having seen Simpsons episodes yes. that reference certain locations and characters yes. and other parodies and other like set like there's or just the amount of like puzzle box shows I watch that right. like only exist because of Twin Peaks and that thus are full of referential material that watching Twin Peaks was interesting. Uh, I mean, I really enjoyed the show. Like it is, it holds up like regardless of how much you could sp- you could read Wikipedia summaries of every episode right. and it is still a tre- tre- tremendous show to watch but some of the impact some of the, the 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 joy of the discovery was taken away because i came to it in a way that the culture had already permeated so much of what i mm. knew in advance right mm-hmm. the um, so to say, get to your point really quick on lucy though i do think and and to shout out the idle thumbs twin peaks rewatch podcast twin peaks has such weird gender politics in mm-hmm. that women are perpetually victimized in that show. It mm-hmm. opens with the death of a young woman. Um, it, it, let me tell you, women continue to be on the end of violence in that show. Yeah. Um, they tend to tend to be hurt by men. Mm-hmm. Um, men continue to hurt women in that show is actually what I want to say. Yeah. Um, but also, and, and again, uh, Chris Remo and Jake Rodkin over on, on the Idle Thumbs uh, Twin Peaks Rewatch podcast pointed out that for the first two seasons of that show, um, at least, women are hyper-competent in the city of Twin Peaks. Twin Peaks only functions because of the women of Twin Peaks who are 
constantly cleaning up the fucking messes Mm -hmm. of the dopey, shitty dudes. Yeah. And constantly doing the emotional labor of, like, making them feel like they're not complete fuck-ups, even when they're complete fuck-ups. Yeah. Um, Operating the institutions that Twin Peaks needs to, to, like, run run by. Like, like this is what you're kind of getting at with Lucy, right? It's like... Shout and Norma with the R and R, right? A hundred percent, yeah, a hundred percent, which is seen as like the heart of the of the yeah, town, yeah. in a sense. It's like the hub, um, and that is super fascinating. Given the thing that you started with, which is it's a soap opera, it's yeah. like a really cool soap opera. Yeah, um, I don't know. I I think that that stuff has always worked for me pretty well. Yeah, it's, it's ahead, also Rob. a show that I I. I enjoy so when you were talking, um, Natalie, about you know what you're curious about, and you're curious what the show will or won't address and expand upon. Um, uh, what I love about Twin Peaks is its indifference to like that aspect of its own. Like it is both obsessed and indifferent to its own mythology, yeah. um, mm-hmm. which is such an interesting approach for a show because the takeaway from so many shows that came after that used Twin Peaks as like their foundational text was to be obsessed with their mythology, but also obsessed with those answers. Um, Mm. And what Twin Peaks realized was that the tension you can have with an audience is, is both providing and not providing answers, but the the way it presents itself as a sort of creative ethos is indifference. It's like Twin Peaks just is like, it is as a place, it is as a creative work. And, uh, that frustration you have with the word, well, not frustration is even the wrong word, but that tension, I guess, is the more accurate. So like, is part of what makes it special. Like, and it's thing, it's 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 a, a lot of what a lot of shows afterwards really didn't quite grasp. Like, it's you know, if you look at you know the sort of you know modern puzzle box show of of Lost, right? Like, that mm-hmm. was a show that um, was not indifferent to answers. Like, it, yeah. it unfolded the puzzle box really interestingly, um, but the answers themselves, like, it, you know, it. When it provide it provided a lot more answers than people give that show credit for, mm-hmm. but as it turns out, the answers weren't that interesting because the questions it was asking were the interesting part, and then right. it didn't right. realize that actually what it should have should have done was leave more ambiguity. And you take mm-hmm. um, uh, Damon Lindelof, who was one of the co-creators of that show, the show he made after that, The Leftovers, is a is a response to uh, Lost and the creative uh, response to that show and the audience response is that The Leftovers opens with. Uh, you know, a significant portion of the planet just disappearing in the blink of an eye in sort of a cataclysmic event and everyone's left behind and the show never answers why. Um, mm. And the show is upfront about saying we are indifferent to why? what happened. We're just going to deal with the fact that it did. And Twin Peaks is very like, things just happen. Yeah, and yeah. That's just, it just happened. You don't need to know why the curtain was opened. The curtain just opened. And that's just right. a really yeah. interesting way to approach storytelling um, that not a lot of shows have the courage for because they, especially in an age of Reddit and YouTube analysis, like there is this desire, and this is what Westworld gets wrong. Even as a show that I like in certain respects, mm-hmm. is is the way that Westworld was written. Like we want you to, to be solved. This. The answers yeah. are there. It undercuts so much of the parts that I do like about that show because it is so obsessed with the answer portion. Yeah, and I think that indifference is shared by. Or is at least, like, mimicked for you in the show itself, like, when um, the sheriffs all walk in and the agent walks in and, you know, the moose head is, like, on the table. And they're like, why is the moose head on the table? And he's like, oh, fell. Like, like, and that's it. (laughs) Yeah. You know? Fell from where? 
Sure. Like, I don't yeah. know. Maybe it was like on the wall and then it fell. Yeah. And then they put it on the table to put it back up. Like, that's perfectly logical. Yeah. And that it doesn't and have to be. It doesn't. Ha- and like when when uh, you're in the when you're in the school for one of the first times and the kid is like. You're doing like a dance thing. You're like, doing like a weird. He like, he's like. And he like dips out for no reason. Like, cool. Kids. I don't know. Kids like, dip sometimes. Kids dip. <laughs> <laughs> Kids dip. Kids are known to dip. <laughs> Kids are known to dip. Um, but but I. It's like those kind of little quirks or those little moments. They're not because they're not fixated on in the show by anyone in the space. Right. No one is like, why did that kid dip? Yeah. Because no if like, they did, everyone who's watching would be like, all right, why the dipping did kid. We have to figure out what's up with the dipping kid. Here's my thirty minute analysis of the dipping kid. <laughs> Now, granted, but, that video probably still exists. Yeah, I was going to say, yeah, that's definitely out. But the work say, doesn't invite that in the same way because it is structured in a very specific here, way. Here's yeah. what I would say is, like, as someone who's seen everything there is in Twin Peaks, I haven't read the books. I haven't read, like, the secret diary of Laura Palmer or, like, this dossiers of whatever, blah, blah, blah. Is that all David Lynch certified? N- no. So, like, Mark the thing Frost, that, right? Yeah. yeah. So here's the – there's it's a couple things people. to know. Well, it's a bunch of people because it's because, a TV show yes. and a million people make it. Also, it's it's worth saying that specifically because you can really start to feel the touch of different directors and writers mm-hmm. uh, as the show continues. Mm-hmm. The second season, there's a point at which David Lynch and Mark Frost – kind of take their hands off the rudders and let a different team, creative team, take the lead. And it is a very straight – it leans so – I mean it's already a soap opera. It is a yeah. soap opera, good and bad. But it leans really hard on some some qualities of American soap opera storytelling that are just like rough. The yeah. acting gets worse because the direction isn't as good and the cinematography isn't as compelling. And it's just – it gets it gets rough in, in the yeah. middle of season two. Um, but there's a lot of people who touch that show and – of the two leads, of David Lynch and Mark Frost, there is a divide in what they're interested in in a real way. And one of my favorite things about Twin Peaks as a property are, are the ways in which you can be like, aha, this is Mark Frost, mm. where it's about the kind of like the the weird conspiracy side, the stuff that ends up happening with different agencies and mm-hmm. with different connections between, you know, the, the history of uh, the you – know, not the ancient history of Twin Peaks, but the but the history of an earlier Twin Peaks, right. and blah, blah, blah. Um, and the, the David Lynch stuff tends to be more um, uh, weird and, and it's about producing an emotional reaction mm-hmm. and a feeling of often revulsion. Mm-hmm. And there are times when it, you can almost feel the two fighting in yeah. their works. Um, you haven't seen Firewalk With Me, but Firewalk With Me in parts feels like a direct response to the kind of twee quaintness of, of Mark Frost's Twin Peaks. Um, there are parts in Twin Peaks The Return, which I, I will not get into at all, but that feel like an entire response to Twin Peaks as a whole work, that it feels like Mark Frost and, and David Lynch sat down and were like picking at their own stuff until yeah. it became something a little bit different. Um, and I love that quality about about the show. Uh, and, and I also think one of the things that I think one of the things that that makes it different than we do get the thirty minute what what's the secret of blah 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 yeah. video for Twin yeah. Peaks. But what I see more of is how is this about the reaction to abuse? Mm-hmm. How is this? What is the show saying about empathy? 
and and the dangers of empathy or the the positives of empathy. Um, wh- what does this say about you know American exceptionalism or the feeling of the American like small t- small town Main Street America? What is David Lynch? What are David Lynch and Mark Frost and the creative team of, of Twin Peaks trying to communicate about? cities and towns in America where everything looks so pristine and perfect. Yeah, the insular. Exactly. Like, like to- great coffee, dead girl on the on the ground. Yeah. Right? Best pie. Best, but, but, but the best pie. But, but the, also, <laughs> what's happening at that, at that, uh, the... Um, One-Eyed Jacks. At One-Eyed Jacks or at the, the not the factory, the... the what's the, the mill? The mill, at the sawmill, the right? Sawmill. Um and that stuff does end up being the center point of what a lot of the, the fan communication is about. But then also there is still a little bit of the like, well, what does this mean? What does that mean? But but that ends up dripping down into a larger conversation because there isn't a, a there isn't the key to unlock it all. And yeah, that's part because, of why I love it. Yeah. The what does it mean is more like a fun thing to do. Like the little weird like that that it, it's like less consequential. Right. And so that is kind of interesting to be more imaginative with that to be more creative and to have a little bit more like audience interpretation there but for the things that you're talking about in terms of like as a representation of a story of abuse or uh, reactions to it's very much a show about the abuse that happens in plain sight that nobody like this Mm -hmm. is a show where nobody fucking listens nobody pays attention to particularly like what um. women are saying and showing and going through. And I think there's a point early where, like, might be James says something to the effect of, like, oh, they won't understand because, uh, you know, they didn't know her like like I did. Like I knew her. Yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. And the answer is, like, everyone thinks they know in this series, but, like, nobody knows. And that well, per- that allows so much to be perpetuated. What's so disturbing about that, I think, is, and this is, one or two episodes ahead of you, Rob, but Laura has like a lot of secrets and the fact that they are dispersed. Well, I guess it's not, but this is kind of the fact that the, the secrets are dispersed across like all these different people. Right. And there's a scene at the funeral, uh, Laura Palmer's funeral where, uh, Bobby is like, we all fucking knew. Yeah. Like everyone had a tiny piece of that something was wrong and nobody did anything. And that's super disturbing. Um, And it's also disturbing that this is like, I don't know, that they're, that like, I have this like strange vision of Laura where they're, where she's isolated and isn't calling for. Um, I <laughs> that was weird, right? I just want to say, I just want to the, the the pause went on long enough that we have to acknowledge the weird pause. It, Y'all, did you did hear you it? hear it? What? Did you hear that? I heard kind of a rumble, maybe. Yeah, there was suddenly a very strange it sound. Was like, and I was yeah, like, oh, we might be. Fuck. Yeah, I think we she may here. Have, I, we may just crossed over into another world. I don't know. We're in the <laughs> the dreamscape. Jesus. Um. But what I was going to say is that uh, there, I have like these two kind of conceptions of Laura from when she was alive. And one is that she was extremely isolated oh, and like isolated her. I think this is like what the 
sort of show first presents is that she was like isolated, wasn't talking, had a lot of secrets and like had this like private life. And that's why, you know, nobody knew. Um, but the fact is that these these secrets were like deposited in all mm. these different little places. And any one of these things was a sign that, you know, something, you know, something is very, very You didn't wrong. need it all to know. You didn't need it all. You could have had one piece to be like, okay, something is off here. Um, yeah. Um, just last thing. Uh, I couldn't like with the music, this, I just made this note the other day, uh, like about what was driving me crazy, driving me nuts about it was, um, is I, I called it all the music sounds like a glissanderge is kind of how it sounds like it is. I think that's the romantic quality of it, but it is uh, slowly like the artistic soap opera theme is something I think I'll want to revisit. Cause I am not sure the degree to which it is intentionally like evoking soap opera conventions uh-huh. and sound and look versus like, look, this is nineties TV. And like, mm. you know, you put, you put a nineties TV crew on something. This is what you're going to get. Even with David Lynch. I mean, this aired on ABC, right? Like, it, it did. It, it, like, it's it's like, and it's also what's weird to uh, <clears throat> it's interesting to read up on the history of the show. Like, this was a this was a you know back in a time when still everyone watched. Like, a popular show was a show that everybody watched. And Twin Peaks, especially now, where like David Lynch is like, oh, he's like that that quirky director who makes like you know small culty movies. Like, Twin Peaks was a phenomenon. Like, the first season was like a kind of show that everybody was watching and to to look at it now as a cultural artifact and how strange it feels and how odd and like the little the little uh flourish you know the the boy dancing and like the other stuff like that like you wouldn't see that in a show like this was a show that like tens of millions of people were watching were like Mm. on the edge of their seats to find out how much to laura palmer and are probably ignoring all these like lynchian quirks along the edges um and it's it'll be interesting when you get to when both you get to season two because a lot of where it gets strange is because, you know, the first season is what, 10 episodes? Something like that? Um, something like that. Something like it's, that. A sh- it's a pretty short order. And eight, the second eight. season is eight. Yeah. And the second season is 22. Oh, um, shit. Oh, that's always yeah. where things go wrong. Yeah. Well, and that's, and, and it, was a res- it was a result of the cultural response, the commercial response to the show, yeah. which was, hey, you need to turn this into an actual soap opera, which is that this show needs to run a full year. It's, we don't need to get into that here, yeah. but it's, You'll you notice it acutely in the show when it takes turns that are a result of like commercial pressures on the show mm. that forced the creative team to, in, in a certain way, walk away. Um, although then they came back for the finale, right? They or come back for the like final that? like three episodes, which are which are solid. Which yeah. are I mean, I, I, and then I, they did Firewalk, right? I, well, yes. Then then Lynch did Firewalk, and then they both did the Return. And yeah. Mark Frost wrote books about the setting. Like, there are definitely yeah. all sorts of interesting... He did all, like, the mythology building stuff that happened in, like, the, the periods between Twin Peaks mm. and then Right. Peaks well, and then, and then Jennifer Lynch, David Lynch's daughter, wrote The Secret Diary of Laura Palmer, which is, oh, fasc- which is fascinating. Huh. So, uh, wow. When I was um, a kid, Twin Peaks and Northern Exposure were confused in my head, and <laughs> I, that led to some really unfortunate uh, viewings of stuff on the VCR. Uh, anyway, we got to take a little break here uh, to pay some bills and to propagandize you, of course, with Great, good. Uh, messages <laughs> that everything is fine, everything is good. Consume, consume, consume. <laughs> 
Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Okay, so uh, Patrick... We've been talking about uh, weird shit and implied violence and abuse for a little while here. Um, I don't <laughs> think I don't think the thing you brought this week is as metaphorical or subtle. What the fuck did you make us watch last night? Mandy, <laughs> Mandy is what you watched. Uh, yeah, it's the the new film from. Uh, uh, Panos Cosmatos, I believe I'm pronouncing that correctly, or if the interview I looked up where they introduced him, you pronounced his name wrong, and it's not <laughs> on me. Um, it's the second film. Uh, he, I, so I did a little research before. Like uh, uh, Panos Cosmatos is the son of George Cosmatos, who directed uh, Tombstone, and then oh, also directed huh, a bunch of that. other uh, uh, films like Rambo Part Two <laughs> and uh, uh, Leviathan and Cobra. Like like right. like a, a lot of '80s staples. Uh, if you you know went to your local blockbuster and went down the '80s rack, like those were uh, a lot of films you would find. And um, so yeah, this is uh, his second film. The film he made before this, eight years ago, Beyond the Black Rainbow. Um, uh, Panos comes out of a both uh, Mandy and uh, uh, Beyond the Black Rainbow are. Uh, come out of a genre of horror that is very art housey, uh, mm-hmm. very influenced by like seventies, uh, like Suspiria, um, like in which aesthetic is often uh, more important than plot or characters or anything else. Like it's they're they're often more mood pieces um, in which like the the soundtracks, the visuals drive their own narrative rather than like the actual motivations or like what's being depicted um, in terms of plot and characterization. Um, And so uh, his first movie, Beyond the Black Rainbow is, I found it, I struggle with like, as someone who loves horror, I struggle with uh, enjoying a lot of like sixties and seventies cinema. I find it to often be a chore that like art house horror is not something that always works for me. I respect movies like Suspiria. I don't, I would not say I liked Suspiria other than sort of respecting what it accomplished and sort of what it represents as like Italian horror and beyond the black rainbow is like very much in that vein. It is Mm -hmm. extremely slow. It is extremely aesthetic in a way that when I saw it, I was like, cool. I don't, this was not for me, but I sort of enjoyed what it was trying to do, I guess, or at least that's what I would tell my friends who really like that movie and I don't want to feel weird and left out. Um, I think Mandy is a, a far more approachable film. It sort of splits the difference um, in a lot of ways. It is in a lot of ways very traditional horror and it is a lot of ways very art house horror. Um, the setup is uh, uh, there's this couple uh, in the woods. Um, uh, is They are very sort of like removed from society, um, there is Mandy and Nicholas Cage's character. Do they even say his name? I don't know if his character is actually. Red. It's like Red, Red Miller or something like that. Yeah, they okay. say Red like at one point. 
Okay. Um, I, I, I just want to say really briefly, people should yeah. watch the trailer for this at the very yeah. least. Like, pause the podcast, watch the trailer, and then come back because it is worth internalizing what the aesthetic and the sound of what this movie is. The trailer, so, like, it, the movie is just like a longer version of that trailer. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like, you'll get a lot of what Mandy is, even if you decide it's not, like, for you, from from that, like, you know, two-and-a-half-minute trailer. It is, right. is really, the trailer itself is, like, really worth watching and, and conveys a lot of the what the, the movie is going for. And, yeah, so it's this couple in the woods, um, and uh, the movie spends, part of what I really like about it is it spends, like, the first 30 minutes, like, really just setting up, like, not much happens in the first 30 minutes, but actually a lot happens. Like, it sets up characters. It sets up a relationship. It sets up, like, personal stakes, uh, between these two, they are very separated from society. They don't bother other people. They are sort of on their own, and and they love that. Like they have a very loving, caring relationship. Um, like there's a, a moment early on where Nicolas Cage, who, um, you know, he's a laborer that is uh, like out like chopping down trees, and like there's a moment on the helicopter as they're going away from like the job site where someone offers him a beer to be social, and he just kind of politely turns it down and. He heads back home to to be with his significant other. Like these these people are very happy. They've sort of like rejected certain parts of society, and like they have found a life for themselves in the middle of the woods, uh, all on their own. She's um, like a dope fantasy artist, and yeah. he works at Whereas a lot of heavy metal shirts. Where yes. <laughs> reads it's a lot like, of. It's a period piece uh, <laughs> of a sort. It's it's a night. Yeah. It takes place in nineteen eighty three, right? Um, so lots of metal shirts. Um, lots of like metal fashion, lots of like tight jeans and cut off shirts, and band shirts, eighty stuff, and eighty sci fi fantasy sword and sorcery, yeah, um, aesthetics throughout the entire film. But like she loves that. Like yeah. that is that she's is like present- reading. Uh, uh, what's her name? She's reading. Uh, she's reading like a very poor. Uh, yeah. Yeah, we're we're gonna we're gonna fuck this up, and it'll be like we're not gonna uh-huh. get it. Uh, it's also, I think, it's it's a period piece, but, like, where a lot of period pieces, I think, about the 80s are like, oh, whoa, look at the 80s, neon. Like, yes. what, what's, yes. the, what's the new cultural thing happening in the 80s? This is a period piece in the way it felt in the early 80s, looking back on the way the 70s ended. Right? 100%. It's all about, like, if the 70s is where it starts to feel like uh, the unraveling is beginning. And, I mean, this movie's explicitly about, like, this couple who sort of run away from society, they are found by murderous cultists, basically. And what sets Children everything in motion gone. is that a creepy... Children. yes. What, what sets everything in motion is that a creepy religious cultist also apparently has, like, a line on summoning demon bikers? But we'll, we'll, we'll get to that. We'll get there. Uh, but, yeah. but this is about, like, this idea that it's the early 80s. But it feels like in the last few years, something has gone badly wrong with the world and with America. And, like, spirituality has become twisted and tainted even. Like, people who've gone mm-hmm. forth and, like, seeking faith. What, they're seek- what, what they find isn't faith, isn't spirituality. What they find is entitlement and darkness and nihilism. Personal, yeah, personal salvation. Like, just, just like, protecting yourself is is the only goal it's not about betterment of the world or your connections to other people it's about oh am i going to get saved it opens with that reagan with that reagan uh talk right it's not the morning in america is that reagan yeah the headphones oh spirituality on the radio yeah he flips off the radio angrily spirituality is yeah 
He's like, fuck off, Ronald Reagan. hundred pretty sure that was Ronald Reagan. Maybe it wasn't. Maybe I'm wrong. I'm pretty sure it was too. Yeah, I thought that's that's definitely. If, if it wasn't, if it wasn't an, an exact. It was a, it was a sound alike. It was meant to evoke the, the Reagan and you know the anti hippie and the uh, the, the rise of yeah the, the the rise of kind of the the American evangelical Purity movement, the Grams, the Bennetts. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly, exactly. Um, I was also so the thing is though from the pictures from everything that. I'd seen and heard beforehand, and then I was talking with Natalie last night. I was expecting this to be a really rough movie. And it is, but not in the, like, so me, the thing I have trouble with is, um, I don't know, just like, really nightmarish gore fests are not my thing, and I was worried that's what this was going to be. But that's... Oh, sorry, Rob. It's no, I'm I'm relieved. I was able to watch okay. it, right? I was like, because the the thing I'd seen repeatedly was like Nick Cage literally bathed in blood, and yeah. I was like, that's probably not gonna be for me. Um, <laughs> and the movie unfolds a lot more slowly uh, than than you're going to expect. But but I think the 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 thing I was not prepared for was how beautiful this movie was and how like not only she she illustrates these covers and the, she creates this art Mandy creates this art inspired by these these uh fantasy and sci-fi novels and metal albums for sure but watching it I was struck by how often this movie was like the pastoral version of that type of art if that makes sense like it's all hypersaturated. The colors almost seem to like mm. pulsate and throb in the frame. There's all sorts of um, little camera tricks, right? Like uh, lens flares and like chromatic aberration. Like everything is like vibrating and bursting with like color and life and potency. Um, yeah. And that was not the movie I was expecting. I was not expecting a movie that was going to be as interested in the way like the sun rising over the trees looks as Mandy is. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's, this is like very, uh, this is a movie that if you were to put it on a VHS tape and just put it up, uh, it, from actually 1983, it would fit in very well. Like the trademark of like, se- like late 70s, you know, like basically like early 80s. And then like before that is like long shots. And it's not like long tracking shots. It's just like modern horror is obsessed with the cutaway. It is the jump cut. It is right. speed. It is efficiency. Um, and, one of the, the hallmarks of, of uh, Panos Cosmatos movies and just like movies of this era in general are just like long shots that linger on both beauty and ugliness and emotion and terror. I mean, there's the, you know, w- without getting into sort of like the, the what actually happens in this, like there's a film where something horrible is happening in front of Nicolas Cage. Um, he is tied up and the the film goes silent except for the soundtrack. You don't hear the actual horror that's happening in front of him. You just have a quiet, eerie soundtrack that is slowly zooming in on its face for such an uncomfortable period of time. It is not two seconds. It's not five seconds. It's not 30 seconds. It's like several minutes of just focusing in on his face in which he's not screaming. Because most, most, if you made this movie in with modern cinematologies, you'd be cutting in between the thing that's run, happening in front of him. And you'd be cutting back to him. He'd be screaming at the top of his lungs. There'd be loud, shrieking violins playing um, to a crescendo and instead like this movie lingers in a way because it wants you to sort of just like be in this world and actually it, Twin Peaks was like an appropriate like topic to talk about before this because this movie is very ephemeral it is very mm-hmm. uh, it's 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 not nearly as mysterious as 
uh, Twin Peaks, but it does feel often like the movie has an undercurrent both of like the culture and counterculture and and drug culture. Um, but the movie feels very much like a hallucination in which you are not meant to fully <laughs> grasp like whether what's happening in front of you is reality or surreality, and like the way it plays with that, both in imagery and in plot, um, and the events that take place. Like I found to be like you kind of just have to let go and just go. With yeah. the movie in a way that um, I found like deeply compelling and even more so upon a rewatch where I already knew what I was expecting. And I think the movie actually works even better upon a rewatch because it's le- you're less on the edge of your seat over like, well, what's going to happen? What's, you know, you know, especially if you're worried about the violence or the horror around the corner, like you can more better just kind of linger in the moment because there's some truly masterful and beautiful shots in this film that like. I found myself rewinding and rewatching just because they were sort of wonders to to take in. Yeah, I rewatched the not on purpose, but I rewatched like the first twenty minutes of the movie like several times because I kept getting interrupted. <laughs> um, and I found that the um, it was just so interesting to me to to take in that movie without having to like know what happened and and that's like kind of what you're saying about like the like Twin Peaks is a good ca- or partner to this because I when I was watching that movie like the 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 reasons why things were happening wasn't as compelling as like the the literal coming together of the movie itself like the the literal visuals the the sound everything like that um that what that is what was compelling me forward and keeping me through the movie is not to figure out, you know, what is exactly going bump in the night. It's like, okay, like these visuals are just so cool and I want to keep watching Mm -hmm. them. Um, But uh, yeah, I don't know. I have, I don't want to spoil. I think there's stuff to talk about that isn't necessarily spoilers, but, but I do want to maybe address directly. Um, because I think there are things that just like stand out, yeah, and are like one of my favorite things about this movie are though is the way in which it moves almost effortlessly um, between aesthetic modes. Um, it it has such a long, slow intro, as Patrick says, um, and then it breaks those up with these with two different things. I think one uh, clear references to a sort of horror. Um, uh, kind of formula. There's a there's a sequence where Nicolas Cage goes to Bill Dukes, who's a, a classic uh, Hollywood like action and horror uh, actor, to retrieve a crossbow. <laughs> that is just like he goes into this old trailer. He they they have an exchange that references some past and some history, mm-hmm. um, and that that style of event happens a couple of times in the movie where there's just like, okay, I see. Okay, we're in a weird bad seventies horror movie. You know, like that yeah. is the vibe. Um, but the second, the other thing it does is it breaks it up with with. Or I think another one of those things is just like is humor it uses. There are moments mm. that are just devastatingly funny. The the cheddar goblin sequence. Yeah. Oh my um, god. Just like fake TV. Com- I think it's a fake. It has to be it's a fake. Like TV commercial, um, but it's 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 it is so it it's it's like ju- it's just real enough, and then just odd enough where you're you're like, wait, what's going? It's on? So the noise was real, so right, like Cheddar exactly. Goblin is like. <laughs> exactly. Remember how fucked up advertising was in this era? But even the way that's used is like right. life goes on. Like you're like the 
the, the way that is deployed is the suddenly like snapping back to normalcy, but normal's right. never well, normal. Is it. It's never as normal well, as it looks. Well, and then you get the bathroom scene, which to me is yeah. like the height of that movie. It's um, like the scene of the movie. It's um, so like, good. The, it's, and, it's where, and it's where Nicolas Cage, uh, who is all over the place as an actor. Check. Yeah. I mean, and, and yeah, like he's such an all – like Nicolas Cage is as good as you'll ask him to be. I think yep. is like what modern Nicolas Cage is. Like <laughs> if you give him a good script and if you give him like good direction, he can do tremendous things. And the bathroom scene in this movie is – I mean, it's truly I like I watched it like four or five times, like because there are so many subtle things happening in this moment. It communicates so much about like loss and despair and exhaustion and just anger in the course of, like I don't know, 90 seconds or however long that that scene goes on um, that is both like touching and like commu- it communicates so much without with doing so little that it's just it's truly evocative in a way that like, like it, the contrast with like. Uh, the way the the movie sets up like really tremendous like visuals, you know, with like red lighting in the background of the of the woods, and that lights up these yeah. Cenobite Hellraiser looking. That is what they are. They um, are Cenobite bikers. It's they're Cenobikers. It's amazing. Yeah. yeah, it's yeah, and that whole scene with the lighting is like both terrifying without actually being like tremendously violent. It's a really, it's good. But that's that bathroom scene. Like it, uh, anyone that is, I mean, we've all experienced loss in different ways, but like. Like, tremendous, excruciating, confusing loss. Like, I didn't have a moment like that after my dad passed. But if you were to condense, like, two years after my life into, like, a (laughs) 90-second moment, like, that bathroom scene, like, I sat there going, like, yeah, dude. I fucking get it. It's like all like, of the magic is gone. All of the the saturated the saturated colors disappear, and you're left with this like grimy '70s wallpaper that's like brown and yellow. It's like and, a, yeah, the flower. It's like weird. It's flower like a floral. Design. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And like an old cabinet where he finds like some old alcohol, some like old moon moonshine or rubbing alcohol. Who could say what he's drinking in that sequence? He doesn't uh, seem to be enjoying it. He has to at some point like massage his throat so he can keep chugging it. Yeah. That moment after the thing that divides this movie happens and there's a cut and the cultists leave and when when, after the cut that moment where you're right the 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 colors the filter everything has changed all the magic is gone now it is just like dismal flatly lit reality Mm -hmm. that you're snapped back to is so good the other thing i want to call out here is um i think the the thing that holds a lot of the this movie together and that allows it to have this 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 pacing where it unfolds in a series of like thematic arcs almost uh john johansson's uh score mm. is uh, like i think the mvp of this movie in a lot of ways cuz i think it is doing fortunately his last a lot he, of he listing. died just before this movie came out yeah oh i didn't know that yeah yeah uh, it's unbelievable. Do you want to describe it a little bit for people who maybe you haven't heard it? But it's tough to describe. Like it's it's difficult for me to describe like ambient Prague. You know what I mean? Like it. it <laughs> that's like, it. You got it. Ambient Prague. No, that's right. Because because basically what Rob's getting at is that like yes, like it is synthy in the way so much like horror thriller films like relied on synth uh, based music, uh, but it's not. But it's not John Carpenter, right? Like it's not do 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 do. Like it it has moments where it is thematic and, and builds in a traditional score way, but otherwise it's just sort of ethereally there. Like it's just 
it's its own character, I guess, is is part of what I say. Like, especially relative to modern horror, in which music is just meant to punctuate moments, like you, like a jump scare or something like that. Like, the music is irrelevant. Like, the music in this film is a character all its own, uh, in a way that is given a sensitivity and attention that uh, feels equal to Nicolas Cage or like the lighting. Like, it is it is it is a central tenant in a way that, like, you're absolutely right, Rob. It stitches a lot of the film together because it leans so heavily on the score to even work foundationally. Yeah, I, I, I definitely like there is something about it that is transportive, um, but also un, it's not just it isn't just, oh, right, it's the 80s synth is hot. Like it is yeah. not that at all. Um, it The same instrumentation is used throughout it to be um, kind of uh, to, to set a, a very romantic mood and also to like be the the center of Nicolas Cage's rage um, to be a sort of there are moments at which and, and I get I actually there's a key sequence in which again the score is broken and replaced with the corniest song I've ever heard in my life uh, in which a character re- reveals that he used to be a musician oh, oh my god shit. that scene that scene doesn't work without the rest of the score being just like so overwhelmingly like emotive and real and like ah it's under my skin in this such yeah. a good way yeah and then it's like the worst the, 60s yeah. like yeah um it, that sequence is amazing for a lot of reasons and i think one of them is and i think we have to at least touch on the fact that you know during the twin peaks conversation we talked about the like violence against women in in twin peaks mm-hmm. um like this is a film in which violence is done against the character mandy and i think for a lot of for me, I went in very worried that it would end up being a sort of torture porn or like yeah. that it would really over aestheticize violence done to this character. Like I know it's a revenge movie. I'm not going to talk about what happens specifically this way or that way. I think the the movie throughout most of it is pretty ambiguous and is not mm-hmm. – it is not a film where like I know what's going to happen. And so I want to maintain some of that. Yeah. But I will say that there are sequences of, of not just like – not direct violence but of like torment and and emotional attack mm-hmm. and the way she is written as an agent in those sequences was really important for me as a viewer because mm-hmm. it maintained her perspective and her character mm-hmm. instead of reducing her to like a pawn in a larger story if mm-hmm. that makes sense where she's just the premise for a revenge right fantasy for a bunch of violent sequences that someone said wouldn't that be cool to see happen like that without get- the laughing scene yeah. is yeah, yeah, yeah. That's incredibly powerful. They build up to that, the way it's shot, the way two characters' faces are layered over one another yeah. during a certain uh, sequence is, like, that laughing scene is so uncomfortable and so empowering that for whatever, you know, happens next, it says so much about her, about her... that Like, that laughter lingers throughout the entire it, it it just permeates the whole film afterwards right because everything that drives cage's actions are driven by that laughter and he, and like yeah, what, what yeah. that says about her what, what that says about like what she meant to him like it just it's such an, an important moment in the film about like what they share like yes. it, like that laughter is absolutely shared it like definitely transfers over because there there is humor like he he is also laughing in the face of like you know during these bouts of rage during these like encounters like there is like like you said patrick like that that laughter echoes throughout the whole movie it's just like you pathetic fucks yeah you completely shitty little tiny people yeah yeah which is 
it is it is really cool to see the enemy it, it isn't it isn't like I don't know I don't want to spoil anything yeah People should see the movie. Uh, I will say there is gore in this. Like we we kind of talked about how like oh it's not torture porn. Or Rob, you said like you were afraid it would be this hyper violent thing. There are moments of hyper violence. Yeah, there's moments of hyper violence, but it's not. Um, if on one spectrum there is the hostels of the world right. in which when someone's like the back of their foot is cut, the movie puts the shot down and you see like <laughs> the, the knife go through the tendons mm-hmm. in the back of their foot. Fuck that. Yeah. This movie is not that. It it. it it is also – it feels responsible with its violence. The violence is meant to convey something. Like there are horror movies and I've watched lots of them that are just – when I watch Friday the 13th, I just want to see creative, fucked up, weird things. I like to laugh at death. Like this movie deploys that to some degree but it, its violence is like meant as a creative expression of like the character's yeah. rage. It's um, more like graphic novel-y if that ooh, makes sense. Yeah, sure. Like, yeah. And that's actually something I was thinking about with Twin Peaks too is like – it it feels very graphic novelly in the, in the way that like certain sounds are accented that yeah. you wouldn't necessarily like feel like notice that they are being accented unless you were reading them and then they were accented for you snap or whatever snap right? yeah, yeah whatever yeah. like crackle or like pop those yeah. are the three sounds snap crackle and pop <laughs> this... god damn it okay <laughs> uh, i'll just i'll just leave with this quote when i was reading this interview with uh panos uh, cosmatos where he said uh uh someone asked like where did this project come from and he said uh, I started writing Manny at the same time I was writing Black Rainbow, which would be around a decade ago, um, after the death of my father, which was sort of compounded on top of the death of my mother, which I had sublimated and completely suppressed and not dealt with. I realized that I had to face these things and cope with them or it was going to eat me alive. It wasn't on purpose, but I realized in retrospect that they're both articulating two separate parts of the same thing. Black Rainbow deals with a lot of control. It's an expression of how I was pushing in my emotions and felt trapped. Then Mandy is the opposite of that. The movie's a very emotional outward expression of those feelings. I've said that Black Rainbow is like an inhale and Mandy is an exhale. I became obsessed with the revenge genre around that time because it can be a very cathartic genre. I wanted to make a revenge movie that centered around the person in a way that was centered around a person in a way that was being avenged as much as the Avenger. And I think that speaks to that laughing scene. It speaks to like Cage's motivations. Like this movie tries to not forget the person who was hurt, mm-hmm. even though that. Uh, motivates the the plot that goes forward. So I think mm-hmm. as far as these types of movies go, I think it's a very thoughtful one and I think can potentially be enjoyed by folks that don't necessarily find themselves uh, enjoying horror films. I should, like, I want to amplify that because this is, like, on the surface, judging it by its cover, this is the sort of movie that I tend to go out of my way to avoid. Like, I just wouldn't, I would never have picked this out ever to just, like, watch on, like, on my own. Uh, and I'm extremely glad I did. Like it was, it, it, it's a wonderful experience, and it is not the thing you're afraid it's going to be. Uh, so mm-hmm. yeah, heartily endorsed and one, definitely surprising. One thing I'm realizing halfway through this or three fourths of this podcast is that one thing we should do in each of the segments is like tell people where they could like go. Good. That's good. a good idea. So we'll do these in show notes. We can do it at the end as well. I'll just say that with with uh, uh, with Mandy. Uh, it's playing select in, in theaters, but it is also available on video on demand, iTunes, you know, basically anywhere else you can. Which is uh, a really films. cool way of doing this, like, 
art house horror film that probably would not do great if it was just super widely distributed and had mm-hmm. to like go up against autumn movies. Like, no, like it's available if you're in the, yeah. if you're in the middle of nowhere and you don't have like a theater that gets movies like this, you can get it online. Yeah, immediately. Cool. You don't have to yeah. wait six months. Um, and then it'll be on Blu-ray next month, and I will buy this movie on Blu-ray. Oh yeah. Blu-ray. Oh, so, it'll look great. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't own many movies, but I want to. This own is a high. This, this is a movie that will reward. I think like a high fidelity. Yeah viewing oh yeah yes uh i just i realized just now that i should disclose that i am fr- online friendly with the co-screenwriter uh aaron stort on who is a uh, who is who co-screen wrote this with uh with with cosmatos um also you should follow aaron on twitter he's at some bad ideas <laughs> i don't like we don't go out for beers or anything he came to one of my talks once which was very nice of him but like we're just we but we've been internet friends for long enough that it's like i should say hey heads up i'm we're biased. internet friends i've been rooting for this dude i think this movie is fucking great regardless and probably would anyway but Disclosed. You know, I don't think in the future on this show we should disguise humble brags as disclosures. <laughs> okay, well, no, they should be I... called humble brags. They're not disclosures. <laughs> can I do another humble brag? No. Sure. I uh, I just want to humble brag about another person who I'm friends with who's been doing a really good job promoting a different media franchise. <laughs> That's um, called a pivot. Danica Herod's The Dragon Prince. <laughs> Herod? Her- how do you? How does it? I've already forgotten. I believe it's yeah. Harrods. Her- yeah, Harrods, like the like the, like store. the British store. Like the store. Okay. Uh, that is my segment for today. Is I watched all of the Dragon Prince, which is a Netflix uh, original cartoon um, that was made by uh, uh, I guess like the the lead creators on it were uh, Aaron Ehaz uh, and Justin Richmond. The name of the production company is Wonderstorm. As always, there are a lot of people who work there. There's like a lot of great uh, writers and directors uh, who worked on it. It is a – in some ways, I think it's already being framed as a follow-up or a successor to Avatar The Last Airbender and Korra, um, largely because there's lots of the similar talent involved. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of the, the writers and some of the directors have done – did work on those series. Um, and it is a, a uh, fantasy show. Kind of in like the YA space or like the the you might call it like a middle grade if you were talking about fiction um, story uh, about the um, it's about a, a trio of of kids uh, who are trying to intercede and stop an impending war between the humans and the elves between like kind of the world of 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 humans the kind of like uh, down the the dirty the like kind of dark uh, and and mundane world of humans and this super magical world of elves and dragons and you know the the free flowing of of mystical energies um, and I think that one of the most interesting things there's a couple of really interesting things for the show uh I think it does a lot of things that just cartoons have gotten good at doing in the last decade, last 15 – American cartoons have gotten good at doing, let's say, in the last 10, 15 years around having episodes that are about something without being uh, um, heavy-handed, without being didactic. You you can have an episode that is about stereotype or an episode that is about, um, you know – Making sure you keep your promises, or not making not making promises too lightly, stuff like that, without it being this like, and that's the lesson. And, and you know, the more you know, knowing is half the battle, right? Um, it can just kind of like very character in a character driven way can 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 communicate that. Um, but the the other thing it does really well is it it historicizes conflict in a way that is particular, that is about 
how we got to here. Um, and the Avatar I saw also did that very well. It gave it gave the kind of big actors history. Um, and so here, I think one of the the real star, not the real stars of the show, but the characters who kept me coming back were some of the characters who had been around in the world. From the very, from not the very mm-hmm. beginning, but uh, whose whose actions had led to the core conflict. Mm-hmm. So, the on the human side of things, the which is like where the camera is focused. The the major players um, are a are are the two princes of this one kingdom. There's like five human kingdoms. We're kind of focused on one of them for this for this season, um, and it's Callum and uh, Ezrin who are kind of like you know a teen and then like a preteen, right? Mm-hmm. Um, they're half brothers, and uh, they are. Their father is the king. Hot. He's hot. His father is hot, and so is their father's hot, evil wizard. Very ex. hot. I think they're exes. That's my read on this. One hundred percent. And those are the characters who I think I kept coming back for. Were yeah. uh, King Harrow, who is this like dope, like buff, smart black dude with dreads. What do you mean, Harrow? Uh, Right. Sorry. Like the British, yeah. <laughs> like the British convenience or uh, a department. Definitely store. not a convenience. Store. Um, uh, and and his chief wizard, his chief warlock. I think he's, he's a vizier. Range. Let's let's be real. He's a vizier. He's a yeah, vizier. Yeah, you're right. You're right. He's a vizier. Um, uh, uh, whose name I'm I'm Viren. completely blanking. Viren. 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 Strong name. Mm-hmm. Truly. Also hot. Also hot. Uh, and. The one of the things that I love about the show is that over the course of its season, obviously the kids are going on adventures. Um, the, the long and short is they're trying to bring a MacGuffin to a place to try to be like, hey, we don't have to have a war. We have the MacGuffin. Mm-hmm. Uh, and but what we get bit by bit is this like allusion to the history that got them there to begin with. And it's it's it arrives very organically. Um, and uh, and, you know, there's some good fights along the way. So. I think the thing that I really adore here is that, like, the degree to which the show is about power and the way people use it and yeah. what they derive it from. And I think something I'm really appreciative of here is that I think there's definitely a place for your cartoonishly, like, just purely unredeemably evil characters, uh, like Azula in... Uh, Avatar, right? Where somebody's like mm-hmm. primary motivation is just like raw power and cruelty. But in the Dragon Prince, like the Dragon Prince makes you sympathetic to people that maybe you shouldn't even be as sympathetic to as you are. Like I think like Viren is definitely somebody who you can like watch like sliding deeper and deeper into evil, like almost by episode by episode. Yes. Um, and it's it's really compelling to watch because like at no point is he ever he is he's a good guy in the way we live in a world governed by good guys who do bad bad things right like loves his kids like loves them like really like makes time like mentors them like great family man good friend but uh-huh. here's the thing <laughs> everything he does is like in the service of maybe increasingly unholy ends right but even. Harrow, who I think we're meant to really sympathize with and like, he's sort of your good, your classic, like, ah, there's the good king. But like you were talking about, Austin, we're picking this up at a moment where, like, the bill is coming due for stuff that he is, he is allowed to yeah. sort of fester on his watch. Like, the I mean, first episode has this wonderful feeling of impending doom. Uh, because from the first, like, is Harrow going to get murdered by the end of that episode? That's the, that's oh, it the, feels like yeah, it. yeah. Like, 
the elvish assassins are on his case and they never miss their mark and they're there he knows what he did to bring them to his door and they've done that cool like like duty binding where they like have these these bands they tie to themselves that's like all right this doesn't come off until we get the job done and they always get the job done it's extremely good but i think you actually made the great comparison with with harrow to me that you read him as an obama like figure in that he at once inherited uh, a sort of long-standing war um, and and uh, lots of issues with with the 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 state as it stands that he can identify and he's in in the place to be like yeah we've been fucking up for a long time um, in the way in which he is good-hearted in terms of the way he deals with his children uh, he loves his children a great deal he keeps he is certainly I think the sort of person who keeps people around him who disagree with him in order to like he believes in that spirit of debate but also continues to perpetrate the same things that he can identify as being problems um, there was a sequence pretty early on in which he basically says like if only it were so simple as I can end this thing and as the show continues, it begins to feel more and more like the reason he can't do that is because of the people he keeps around him and because he does not have the will to take large-scale action, large-scale dramatic revolutionary action. And instead, it's just like more comfortable keeping things well, better for people but not changing them in a way that like could risk overthrowing the, cur- the, the, the way things are currently set up. Mm-hmm. He implied like, oh, if only we could end things. It's always yeah. – and things without costing us anything. That's really the that's really the yeah. central like dispute here is that what's what's revealed. Somebody wrote in actually, uh, and I should take them. Up. I'm not going to get their name. I'm sorry. Somebody wrote in expressing some frustration with. There's a way this can be read as being a technologically skeptical uh, show that what's laid out in the in the sort of opening sequence, the the exposition, is that. What the humans discovered is that in addition to the six natural forms of magic, there's dark magic. And dark magic is won by basically pulling life force out of other things. You're taking natural magic, natural power out of the world and using it for yourself. And there's a way you can interpret that as being uh, like a technologically skeptical argument. And I think there's certainly... I think sometimes you should make technologically skeptical arguments. Like I don't... There is a place in the world for that. Right. There are technologies I wish we hadn't discovered. Well, the person writing in was more like yeah. they were seeing a parallel between like anti-vaxxer movements as well, like skeptical, like okay. sort of a reflexive anti-progress, anti-science position. Yeah, but but I think, what is progress, et cetera, et right. cetera? You, mm-hmm. We've had this conversation. This is the thing is like the dispute everyone has with the humans isn't, oh, you humans are just naturally evil. It's that you right. are enriching yourselves and empowering yourselves by leeching magic out of the world yes. from other sources. You are throwing the world out of balance. And that's literally like the that's the nightmare that's the ecological nightmare in which we are increasingly finding ourselves uh mired and and, and doomed. Um and that's kind and of And also go on. And also the ethical nightmare right. I was going to say, uh which is I think what you were pointing to Austin about, you know, why yeah why why are we like we are going ahead with things that we don't know we we aren't at the same time doing we are not doing developments on the ethical on the ethics of technology at the same time that we're doing the developments on the actual technologies themselves and that is 
extremely terrifying and dangerous. Right, like Viren and all of the da- – the Viren has a daughter in this show who's fantastic. Claudia. Claudia. Is that the name? Yeah. Um, both of whom are these brilliant mages. I love how magic is done in this world also. It's like super physical. Like I can imagine going into this show as a creator and be like, all right, this can never look like Avatar. This should never just feel like the way magic works is that people use their will to shape the world. Mm-hmm. Or if that happens, that should distinctly not be a human style of magic. And so it's lots of like three eyes of Newt and like – it's like that style of – like alchemical magic. Love that. The combination of things and like just good handwork, just good like mixing things and like breaking, snapping like bones or whatever to do a thing. Like that stuff is all super good. Um, but neither of them ever do the thing of like – there's no like suspicion of the paradigm. <laughs> there's no – of course we just do dark magic and they both have this great bag of tricks. Um, they, you know, there, there's, a, there's a, a running thing throughout the entire season where it turns out that because they don't have direct access to like natural – Natural magic. He's like, oh, just put it in a ball. Just carry the magic of air around with you all the time. And that's not a thing that's ever really questioned as like, is that chill? It's just powerful. Mm-hmm. It is just powerful. So of course we do it. Um, and even in the kind of the 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 narrator's version of history, you know, we we have what I think is a disinterested narrator. We don't have this. Isn't Harrow telling the story of of humans and and elves, right? Um, their story is one of greed. It is one that's like, hey, we discovered this and we jumped to using it so that we could take something as ours. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I was actually shocked that it went that far in being, nah, the humans fucked up, period, the end. Like that is not – that was not a cool thing to do. Discovering, you know, making nukes is – we're not going to tell the story. We're like, what, what if you use nukes for good? Like, no, they shouldn't have done it. Yeah. Um, and that – actually struck me in a way because I think a lot of children's cartoons end up doing the like, you got to hear both sides. Like we don't want there to just be something that, that is that clear. The other thing I want to call, shout out here is on the one hand, and I think this is actually really well handled. This is an enormously inclusive and diverse show in, in a lot of ways. Like right. uh, a really like a, a character that is already looks like uh, they're going to become a fan favorite. Uh, certainly one of my favorites is, um, this general Amaya, uh, mm-hmm. who is, I, I believe she's, I believe she's deaf. Um, yes, yeah, she is. Cause she, she tells somebody not to look away from her when they're, uh, when they're speaking, but she, she communicates in sign language and it's not translated by the way. She has an interpreter with her right. who like, in like, but when she's making a prayer, uh, before a like memorial to her sister, we don't like, that is not interpreted for you. Like that is, if you can if you can read sign language, then what what's happening is readily interpretable. But uh, the show is really, I think, clever in in how it uh, presents her and how it represents her, and it's like that across the board. But it's also doing something else, which is that I think it is playing on the way we can sometimes view representation as being inherently positive and progressive, even maybe when it's not. If if that makes sense, like. I think like I think there's going to be a lot of people who are really won over by uh Viren's uh, daughter Claudia. Right. You know. Awesome like you know girl power like she can do anything. She's you know she's a brilliant capable uh young woman. The fact that she's like she's allowed to be uh girlish but it's never like communicated as like ha huh, she's still you know she's what a ditz. It's it never does that. It's she's allowed to be a young woman and like have fun, 
but also it never uses that to cast doubt on her capability. But here's the other thing. Is Claudia maybe evil? Because I think she's yeah. maybe evil. <laughs> or she will be. Right. right? That is definitely uh, – of the – one of the core things that the show sets up is very much like, hey, this mage has two children and this mage is has like such a real politic pragmatist. I mean there's literally a line where he's like – One of the best lines in the fucking series. I don't remember. It's like I'm not evil. If somebody, if somebody says you're a monster and Viren just looks right. at him and goes, you're mistaken. I'm a pragmatist. <laughs> right, like wow. he's gonna get it done no matter Jason what. Jason Simpson, and good I, voice acting on uh, on Viren, by the very way. Very good, yeah, but um, but but yeah, like one of the things he puts into motion is very much like how much is he shaping his children to be him, uh, and the answer I suspect will be very much. Um, and I don't know, maybe in season two or season three, we get like Claudia and and her brother like break away from their evil mage father. Who could say? Uh, but I I actually my read is very much like yours, Rob. It feels like you know. Um, the sort of like cheering at the idea of there being a female CIA director and calling that progress, yeah, right? Or like, oh wow, like I, it's it's um, <laughs> queering drone warfare, like that style yep. of like it it no, it's made a very cool woman character in a show that has other cool women characters, which is, I think, an important distinction, right? She is not the woman of action in this show yeah. and therefore the sole, represent- the sole representative of women. Rayla, who is this, this uh, moon shadow elf assassin, is so good. actually, I think, the protagonist of the show um, and, and is also dope. So I think they have room with, with uh, Claudia to have someone who – Right. We are kind of lured in with girl power and then hit with a sort of like like cynical white feminism that's mm-hmm. like, yes, the, the – Girls can be mean too. Exactly. And then like literally like girls can be the face of the powerful hegemony also. Well, like, yeah. Sick. Can't, like King Harrow. Like, it's, like, ah, it's a classic right. fantasy universe, but like the noble strong king but there's is a cool like black king. A, yeah, a, a black king who like, uh, you know, wears his hair in a natural style. Like, awesome. Also, he's perpetuated a generational warfare without end and <laughs> has transgressed every boundary of international like law and norms. Of law. Like, that's, yeah, that's kind of what the show is doing, and I kind of love it for it. Totally. Yeah, I, I, I also think that that's happening with one of the leads, um, uh, Callum. Oh, I hope, my, I hope my sweet baby boy doesn't go bad. He sucks, Rob. Callum sucks. Callum is like – Callum is Kylo Ren but without knowing who Darth Vader is. I like he's he's Kylo Ren except instead of worshiping Darth Vader he worships Harrow. Except he Obama. doesn't think he's special. That's the, the like his No, so- but he does, dude. His actions speak. He's like he will tell you all season that he doesn't think he's that special, but he's the one who's going to make the call and decide what the plan is. He's the one who's going to step out and do a thing while literally he's surrounded by people who are smarter and more knowledgeable than him saying, "Hey, don't do that thing." He does it anyway. He's what 100% a character who believes that you should be you should uh, ask for forgiveness instead of permission and that's how he operates in life uh and is thus far rewarded for it Mm -hmm. Uh, but in a way that i think the show i think the show knows because we do get the sidelong glance from rayla we occasionally get someone who is like you just fucking you're getting us into trouble again and he does it again and he's a he's the primary motor the engine Mm -hmm. of the show because he's willing to do that um but it's going to you know he he at the very end of the season without getting into specifics he does a thing and it works out but he doesn't do it with any consultation he doesn't do it with with any insight that it will work um and i think that his his like soul in a sense will probably be 
you know, uh, at the center of a conflict throughout the series. Mm. I suspect it'll be fine in the end. He'll yeah. find himself. But season what three, what a power move tell it would you. be if it's not fine in the end. Especially with Claudia, right? Like they're definitely going to have Claudia pull him away from Rayla. That is where this goes. Yeah. Mm. If I'm writing this story in 32 episodes from now, write it down. Like Claudia brings him over to her side. Got to have the Zuko back with the Fire Nation arc. You got to do yeah. it. Anyway, uh, but yeah, I think I think you're being a little unfair to Callum. That's a spoiler cast conversation for another day. Yeah. Uh, I think Callum. I think he's a spoiled white boy. I 100 percent do. Like, I think that is how he is written. I think the show shows him to be shitty. I think what's important is he also can be like he knows when he can be shitty and like does try to like do right by it. Like I, a lot of spoiled white boys do that too. That's true. That's true. It ain't. I mean, that's what I like about the show. It's yeah. like I, I. There's a version of the show that I can't stand. That is like just the the very boilerplate version where he's just the the guy who's always getting people into trouble and doesn't actually give a fuck. Like the thing that I, that I encounter in the world is lots of people who both tell me they care, who do care, and who because of their privilege and because of their history don't actually know how to help people unless it also helps them. Mm-hmm. They do not know how to kind of um, divest from divest from ways in which they will gain also, uh, which is like a core thing throughout this season, right? Is like he can't just trust Rayla. He does not just want to give her the things she wants. He needs something too. And and I think there's a conversation there about trust and blah, 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 like that the show does want to have. But he can't bring himself to just do that until it is too late. So I don't know. It is yeah. it is good. I like it. I like it a lot. Yeah. Um, Did the animation bother you? Uh Yeah. Um, I, I, there are times when I think it works in effect. So the anime, it's a CG show that is like, looks like a 2D show, Mm -hmm. right? Um, it's a very, it's a show that is very clearly working on a more limited budget, I think, than something like Avatar. You know, the backgrounds have lots of static characters. There are lots of like static backdrops with active characters in the foreground. Mm -hmm. Um, and the thing you're talking about is an animation style that is like very framey, um, Mm -hmm. You know, we sometimes get like one frame of animation a second, uh, and sometimes it doesn't seem to make sense for why it's doing that. Like sometimes it's a sequence where like the animation needs to be really important, and it's kind of weird. Yeah. And other times, those like hyperactive action scenes are beautiful, and like the yeah. animation is super flowing. But there are times when I think there's uh, there's a sort of like comic book quality mm-hmm. to the way when it happens, and it feels like a choice, but it's not consistent in any way. Um, but I watched it and had a good time watching it because I'm not. It's not really what I was there for. Yeah. I think if it had been as inconsistent all the way through, it would have bummed me out more. But yeah, uh, I think mean, for me, it, I it, it didn't bother me that much. I kind of liked the way it is a show that unfolds in a series of like striking tableaus uh, mm. in, in a way. But I definitely think, certainly, particularly for some action sequences or like scenes where there's a lot of motion or dynamism. They're probably going to have to animate that a little differently than they did uh, because there are moments where it's like a little stop motion-y in a show that generally doesn't look like that. Um, but yeah. Yeah. So, all right. I think uh, – and you can watch that on uh, on Netflix. You can watch that on Netflix, yes. You can watch Twin Peaks on Netflix. Awesome. Probably other places also, right? Probably a lot of other places. Probably several other places. It's on Hulu as well. There you go. There you go. It used to only be on Hulu. That's where I watched it before the And if you want those uh, fascist postcards, go to Boston's Museum of Fine Art. 
uh, on the Art of Influence exhibit. All right, so uh, I think that will do it for Wednesday Waypoints. Uh, our thanks. The first ever. First ever. We'll we'll see how this format evolves and changes. We'll see if uh, we we expand the two minute hate. Uh, just maybe next time, next next season of uh, the Dragon Prince, just an entire episode just devoted to dragging Callum straight to hell. Uh, <laughs> but for now, um, we're still using the Bowen track for this one right now, right? We are still we using. We might the Bowen have track other music one. at some point, but we. I would love to. Yeah. yeah. All right. So our thanks to Bowen for letting us track. Letting us track. Uh, our thanks to Bowen for letting us use his track, Miss You, off the EP Pale Machine. Uh, you can keep up with all of us at waypoint.vice.com. I'm Rob Zachney, and you can find me on Twitter at Rob Zachney. Uh, Patrick, where can people keep up with you online? Follow me at Patrick Klepek. Austin? At Austin underscore Walker. Natalie? At Natalie Watson. Knew the baby voice was coming. Just, it's just coming, Rob. Bye-bye, everyone. Okay. Well, that'll do it for this week's Waypoints. We hope you've enjoyed the break. We'll be back again. And remember, always eat your cereal with milk. Yeah. Milk. We'll be back next week. Uh, we'll be, we'll, I'm doing three moves ahead now. I'm just, doing, I'm just doing the outro to three moves ahead. Uh, we'll, we'll be back again this week uh, with Waypoint Radio. Hope you'll join us again. But until then, do not give in to astonishment. Damn. <laughs> Just gotta shout out my machine elf friends. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.